very pleased to be here today and um, share with you just a few thoughts on remaining Christian. And Father spoke to me about what it takes to just keep on being Christian each and every day. I want to start with referring you to a, a very beautiful set of verses from the Psalms. Psalm 119, the longest psalm in the Bible. And it's uh, 119. I'll just get the point here and we'll return to this. verses 9 and following. How can a young person keep their way pure? By keeping your word, O Lord, I have sought you with all my heart. Don't let me wander from your commands. I have treasured your word in my heart so I may not sin against you. Lord, may you be blessed. Teach me your statutes. With my lips I proclaim all the judgments from my youth. I rejoice in the way revealed by your decrees as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and think about your ways. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. So this is basically a prayer offered by the psalmist to keep the law of the Lord, or the better translation of the word law is instruction, to keep the instruction of the Lord always before their eyes. Well, how can you do that? I mean, you can't keep it before your eyes at every moment of every day in a conscious way. But if you meditate on it every day, that is, if you read the law of God each day, It begins to become something which forms in you a character and a habit. And once a habit is formed, you will want to run to your time of prayer and be with God. But the fact of the matter is we find ourselves living in a strange place, don't we? In a world where the church is um, marginal to say the least and there is, if anything, uh, outright hostility towards us if Christians dare speak up on issues such as uh, what we've just been through with the gay marriage debate, with abortion, euthanasia, etc., etc., drug use, alcohol indulgence and all that. So we're living in a very difficult time. And I want to read something else to you this morning from Genesis chapter 37. I always like to, to return, return us to what I call the stories of our family, our family history. And the book of Genesis is such a foundational, it's a book of beginnings, It's such a foundational book in the scriptures because it tells the history of the patriarchs who really grew up in a time when there was mass unbelief around them. Now we're talking about a period of 4,000 years ago. It's not that that long in the history of creation, but it's very long in the history of civilization. This is a story of Joseph being sold into slavery. And I want to tell you today that Joseph, the all-beautiful as he's known, is a wonderful icon for us, an image of what it means to remain steadfast and holding fast to what God has given us, that is the gift of faith itself. It's like this, Genesis 37, 12 and following. His brothers had gone to pasture their father's flocks at Shechem. And Israel, as Jacob said to his son Joseph, your brothers, you know, are pasturing the flocks at Shechem. Get ready, I'm sending you to them. I'm ready, Joseph replied. He's a good obedient boy, isn't he? And Israel said, go and see how your brothers and the flocks are doing and bring word back to me. In other words, consider, think about, come back and report. So he sent him from the Hebron Valley and he went to Shechem. A man found him there wandering in the field and asked him, what are you looking for? 
I'm looking for my brothers. Can you tell me where they're pasturing their flocks? Oh, they moved on from here. I heard them say, let's go to Dothan. So Joseph set out after his brothers and found them at Dothan. They saw him in the distance and before he had reached them, they plotted to kill him. They said to one another, oh, look, here comes the Lord of the dreams. Who are the Lord of the rings and the Lord of the fries? Well, Joseph is the Lord of the dreams and that's what he is. He provoked incredible enmity or hostility and jealousy in his brothers by the dreams that God had revealed to him. So now the brothers said, come on, let's kill him and throw him into one of the pits. We can say a vicious animal ate him, then we'll see what becomes of his dreams. But Reuben heard this, he tried to save him from them. He said, let's not take his life. Reuben also said, don't shed blood, throw him into this pit in the wilderness. But don't lay a hand on him, intending to rescue him from them and return him to his father. But when Joseph came to his, came to his brothers, they stripped off his robe, the robe of many colours that he had on. They took him and threw him into the pit. And the pit was empty and it was without water. All right. The pit was empty and it was without water. I want to suggest to you that today that we are living in the equivalent of a modern day pit. From our worldly experience, our experience in the world as Christians, there's precious little to inspire us from the society that surrounds us. The fact that it was a pit means that it's some place you could not get out of. The fact that it's without water shows that there is no sustenance for life because you need water for life. He was a victim of his brother's jealousy. But how did he keep his faith and what was it that he called to mind when he was in the pit? What was it that kept him alive? He promised his father he would go and do a reconnaissance journey to the fields and see what the brothers are doing, how the pastoring is going. And he found himself a captive a victim of his brother's jealousy and thrown out of the family and left for dead in a pit. Well, of course, the story goes on. They sat down, the brothers sat down to eat a meal and when they looked up, there was a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. Their camels were carrying aromatic gum, balsam and resin going down to Egypt. Now, who are the Ishmaelites? Anyone remember? Sorry? How are they, are they related to, to Joseph? They're cousins. They're cousins. They're cousins through whom? They're cousins through Isaac's brother, Ishmael. Remember the child who was born to Hagar? The child is not according to the promise, but who would become a great nation. So they're family, but they're at a distance. They're at a distance. We're several generations down now, but they are related. They're Semitic people like Joseph and his family. Notice what they bring. They were carrying aromatic gum, balsam and resin going down to Egypt. So there's a sense in which there's a degree of sweetness and fragrance that will come even from captivity. So we have to be aware that no matter how difficult the situation is that we're in, God will send someone along to lift us out of it. And it will usually be somebody whom we don't expect. And they will bring fragrance into our rather stinking life which it can become Judah said to his brothers what do we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood come on let's sell him to the Ishmaelites so they want to sell their own brother well, effectively to their cousins they'll sell him to their cousins pretty horrible isn't it and not lay a hand on him for he is our brother our own flesh oh dear he's got an attack of conscience 
His brothers agreed. When the Midianite traders passed by, his brothers pulled Joseph out of the pit, sold him for 20 pieces of silver to the Ishmaelites who took, took him to Egypt. And when Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not there, he tore his clothes. He went back to his brothers and said, the boy is gone. gone. What am I going to do? So they took his robe, slaughtered a male goat, dipped it in blood, sent the robe to their father and said, we found this, examine it. Is it your son's robe or not? And of course, the story is that, of course, Jacob wept. He believed that his son was dead. Meanwhile, oh no, well, actually, I'll finish reading that. There's a very good point in that too. His father recognised it's my son's robe. A vicious animal has devoured him. Joseph has been torn to pieces. That was the expectation that Jacob had. And it was a fair expectation to make, wasn't it, given the history? He tore his clothes, he put sackcloth around his waist and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and daughters tried to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. No, I will go down to Sheol. What's Sheol? It's the place of the pit. But it's the eternal pit where the souls of the dead go, the shades of the dead in the Jewish belief in pre-Christian times. The shades just wander with no existence virtually at all. I will go down to the Sheol, the pit, to my son, mourning, and his father wept for him. But meanwhile, the Midianites sold Joseph in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh and the captain of the guard. Let's return for a moment to the notion of Joseph in the pit. What was he thinking about? Of course, he was thinking about, as everybody would, how will I survive? Will this be the end of me? Is this the cost of obedience, death? Where is my life? What about the dreams I had that the sheaves of wheat which represented my brothers all bowed down to mine? How will God fulfill that? And of course he would have recalled the great promise, the great promise, the threefold promise that was spoken through Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. Does anyone remember what the three promises are? You know how God called Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldees in Chaldea? He took him outside and he said, look at the stars of heaven. I will make your descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the sands on the seashore. I will give to you this land, to a land, come with me to a land that I will give to you. And by you, the nations of the world will be blessed. They're the three great blessings and they are three blessings which continue to this day. God's blessings are still in effect. The descendants are here. The land is there and Abraham is a father in faith to those who believe in the one true living God. So I'm sure what sustained Joseph in the pit was the memory of and perhaps wondering how that blessing would come. So for the Christian today, I want to take that story and apply it to our life today. How can we, as the psalmist says, by the rivers of Babylon, there we sat and we wept, we remembered Zion. Remember when Israel was taken into Babylon in 586 BC? And our captors asked of us a song, oh, how can we sing of you, Zion, in a foreign land? If I forget you, Jerusalem, let my right hand wither and my tongue cleave to my mouth, if I count not Jerusalem above all things. Well, how do we sing the Lord's song in an alien land? First of all, the first thing is to recognise you're God's child that is your identity whatever your denominational or ethnic identity is is secondary first thing is your life is God's in fact your life is not your own 
And when you realise that, you begin to understand that you're part of a much greater picture that God has you in. That your life is not your own. And I'll tell you this, if you look at the history of the great civilizations of the world, civilizations come and civilizations go. But nothing much remains of them other than monuments and old stories. Thoughts and feelings, the aspirations of all those old people have all gone, even of our forefathers, even as close as our grandparents who've died. It's gone. But what lasts is what God puts in people's souls. So our identity is, as St Paul says in the epistles, our life is hid with Christ in God. Our identity is with God. So how can we keep that identity alive? Well, I could give you the, the, the slick Coptic Orthodox answer, go to the Mass, keep the fast, go to confession, do the Agbia, read your Bible, attend the meetings. Yes, that's all true. But I want to talk about something at a far more basic level. And that is this. Jesus tells us in the Gospel of St Matthew, when you pray, go into your private room and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And what I want to encourage you to do is to take your spiritual life on as your own responsibility. And it's not the responsibility of the church at all, it's yours. The life that Christ gave you when you signed up, when you wanted to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, is something that you owe to give back to him. You know, someone great once said, life is God's gift to us and what we do with it is our gift back to him. So how do you do that every day? Well, you have to do what the psalmist says. You have to, have to delight in the law of the Lord. How do you do that? Just read the commandments? No. To delight in God's law, you have to put it before your mind each day. And that's why the use of the psalms is very true. That's why the Agbir is wonderful. But sometimes it's very hard just to go through the standard psalms without used to the way in which they appear and all the extra prayers and all the curiae license and the holy God. And it's all wonderful and it's great if you're in a monastery or a congregation to pray it. But in your own personal life, it can be, it can be of just as good uh, value to you spiritually just simply to say your Psalter and to pray through the, the Psalms in the Bible each day, several Psalms a day. Not only to pray through the Psalms, because they will introduce you to what spiritual life really is. The Psalms contain everything, praise and adoration. They contain joy and sorrow. They contain love. They contain hatred for evil. They contain every emotion. They are a perfect psychological guide to what it means to be human. That's why the Psalter is the most important book of the Old Testament. And second, not second to it, in fact above it of course, is the Gospel of our Lord himself. To read the Gospels, the words of Jesus. That's how you begin to put God's law in front of your eyes. In fact, it doesn't hurt you to say each day, uh, as I often do, to repeat, in fact, what Jesus would have prayed every day. And in fact, what every devout Jew still says today, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, your mind and strength. And the second commandment, you shall love your neighbour yourself, as yourself. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love him with your heart, soul, mind. How can you love God unless you're in living and right relationship with him? Now, one of the pitfalls that comes with this, of course, is that this all sounds very good, Father, but when you actually go to do it, I don't feel anything. Well, that's all right. You're in good company because we're not meant to feel anything. The kingdom of heaven is like a seed that grows within you. It needs lots of water, and the water is diligence, that is, keeping on doing it every day. If you could be as diligent 
about setting apart 15, 20 minutes a day, half an hour of running to the scriptures and reading them quietly, quietly and meditatively, and letting the word sink in as you are about eating three times a day, you'd be all right. But we tend to keep more um, of an eye on our bodies rather than our souls. But to delight in God's law won't be done just simply by reading. You've got to let the word seep into your heart. You've got to let them work their wonders. You know, medicine takes a long time to work usually, doesn't it? When I was a younger man, my spiritual father was Father Zechariah, the Indian Orthodox monk that I knew in Melbourne. And he was a homeopathic doctor. And he uh, used to carry these little white powders wherever he went. He had a hundred different white powders. And I used to go, he said, I can cure you, you know. I said, well, yes, he said, but the trouble with you white men, he said, you want an instant cure. That's why you go to antibiotics. But he used to just take his homeopathic medicine and he wasn't sick. It worked for him. See, we want a quick fix and the spiritual life isn't like that. It took Jesus, think about this. Now you can say, oh, well, he's God. But don't take that away from him. The fact is he's human as well. It took him 30 years to prepare for his ministry. 30 years to prepare. 30 years of faithful obedience, living in the Holy Family. 30 years of anonymity before three short years of ministry and then a terrible criminal's death. Not even the joy of having resurrected from the dead, of going back and telling those who crucified him, look what you did. He didn't even do that, see? He left it as an invitation of faith for us to respond to him. Now, Joseph is a figure like Jesus, isn't he? He's innocent. He does his father's will. He's rejected by his own. He's cast into a pit, but then he's resurrected. And who are the agents of resurrection? Who would have thought of it? The Ishmaelites with their balsam, resin and fine gum, aromatic spices. It was the Ishmaelites who come. God's messengers come to us in all kinds of ways. It could be a kindly word from someone. It could be an act of forgiveness or an unexpected act of love or mercy. Don't ever discount the angels that God can send to you. I cannot stress to you enough the importance of daily scripture reading. There are plenty of Bible reading plans out there, plenty of them. One of the great traditions of the Reformation, when the church in the West was split by the Protestants and Catholics, was that in the Anglican Church, Archbishop Cranmer, who put the liturgy into English, devised a wonderful means of reading scripture whereby you read the whole, New Testament, the whole Old Testament once throughout the whole year and the New Testament twice. So that on the 1st of January, you started with Genesis 1 and Matthew 1. And it followed morning and evening every day for 365 days of the year. It's a wonderful scripture reading plan. And I can't stress to you enough the need to read scripture. Scripture is the foundation of our faith. It's good to read lives of saints. It's good to read quotes. But why read that when you can go to the source? You should read scripture every day. And scripture is life changing. These aren't just old stories. As I've shown you this morning from the story of Joseph there is so much in that story, the depth beyond what immediately appears on the page. Or this is a story about a kid who got thrown in a pit. That's no, a whole lot more than that. Because we know the beginning of taking you back to Abraham and we know the end. We know the end, which I haven't spoken a lot about yet. But after the resurrection of Joseph, he goes to Egypt. Uh, he behaves well in Potiphar's house until he's set up again. And again, he has another kind of death and is put into prison. And then he's another resurrection and comes out, interprets the dreams, and becomes a great ruler and a governor in Egypt, 
And of course, there's a wonderful reconciliation uh, with his brothers, his father. So, persistence, constancy, and a commitment, a commitment to regard the reading of Scripture and our personal, private, spiritual life as of absolute prime importance, as primarily important as breathing itself. You will not form your minds. You will not form the strength. God will not give you the grace to withstand the furnace of what it means to be a Christian in the modern world without those disciplines. You can talk about fasting all you like. You can talk about attending church and it's all important, but it's secondary. Of primary importance is that you take your spiritual life into your own hands. You are a child of God. You answer for it and you do it. And I tell you this, that if you take this up and you do this each day, you will begin to notice after a time that your thinking starts to change because you are being formed by the word of God. This world has become so alien and so twisted in its way of thinking that straight thinking is almost a novelty now in the world, if not downright hostile to the world. But if you let yourself be guided by the scriptures, if you let yourself be guided by the word of God which comes to you, your character changes and your habits change. If I take you again to the book of Psalms, and there's a good reason why the church sees the Psalter as its prayer book, because in the Psalter are many messianic prophecies, but as I said before, there's a perfect, a perfect understanding of what it means to be human. Have a listen to this. This is one of my favourite Psalms, Psalm 139. Lord, you've searched me and know me. You know when I sit down and when I stand up, you understand my thoughts from far away. You observe my travels and my rest. You are aware of all my ways. Before a word is even on my tongue, you know it. You've surrounded me. You've placed your hand on me. This wondrous knowledge is beyond me. It is lofty. I am unable to reach it. Where can I go? And this is how true is this? Where can I go to escape your spirit? Don't we want to do that all the time? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in the pit, you are there. If I live at the eastern horizon, I'll settle at the western limits. Even there, your hand will lead me. Your right hand will hold on to me. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light around me will be night. Even the darkness is not dark to you. The night shines like the day. Darkness and light are both alike. Whose heart can't be moved reading those words? Who has not experienced that? Who's not experienced that in your own life as a human person? Forget religion, forget belief, everything. It's a perfect understanding of the human condition, isn't it? The highs and the lows of what it means to be human and to exist. For it was you who created my inward parts. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I will praise you because I've been remarkably and wonderfully made. Your works are wondrous and I know this very well. My bones were not hidden from you when I was made in secret, when I was formed in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw me when I was formless. All my days were written in your book and planned before a single one of them began. God, how precious your thoughts are to me. How vast their sum is. If I counted them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. When I wake up, I am still with you. God, if only you would kill the wicked. Now, the Holy Fathers teach us that when we read these deprecatory parts of the Psalms, cursings, we regard that as being addressed to sinfulness and passions within us. Okay? It's not about people. 
God, if only you would kill the wicked. You bloodthirsty men, stay away from me. You invoke you deceitfully. Your enemies swear by you falsely. These are all the temptations we face. Lord, don't I hate those who hate you and detest those who rebel against you? I hate them with extreme hatred. I consider them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my concerns. See if there's any offensive way in me. Lead me in everlasting ways. Now I challenge you, my dear friends, if you say those prayers every day and not just rattle them off. You cannot rattle psalms off. You have to let every word seep into your heart. You have to understand. If, you're, if you're, you set yourself to say five psalms a day and you find yourself racing to get to the end of it, stay with the first one and just let it breathe in you. Sometimes it's good just to say a line and use your breathing as well. Slowly breathing in and slowly breathing out. There is a tradition among the monks of the West that they used to keep, I don't know if they do anymore, that they would read a psalm well, like this. For it was you who created my inward parts. You knit me together in my mother's womb. Pause. And it really begins to make a difference. Because the words are still in your mind. They haven't quite disappeared until you're onto the next thought. And the Psalms are so beautifully created that one thought logically follows another as the Psalmist develops his theme. These are God-breathed words. These are not just poems. These are breathed by God and spoken by him to us through David the psalmist. I think the secret of success is perseverance. Perseverance in meditating on God's law day and night. On God's instructions. Because God's instructions are not about you shall not, you shall not. Yes, that's, that's the baby stage. That's the stage of teaching the child, don't go near the fire, it burns. But for those of us who are older, we put childish ways behind. We need to now see what the whole life is that God has for us and why these laws give life. At the end of the book of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomos, the second law, the second reading of the law, Moses stands in the Holy Land before they're about to go in and recites all the laws of God again. And God says through Moses to the people, I set, you, I set before you this day life and death. In other words, these commandments are life and if you don't follow them, it will bring death. I set before you life and death. Therefore, choose life that it may go well with you in the land which I am about to give you. It's the same with the scripture still today. And if, if your Bible is... Oh, where's the New Testament? Around here... If this is all you're reading of your Bible and you've got all this history of salvation, you're missing out. And the New Testament, the New Testament is wonderful and superb and it's the capstone. But the first covenant, the old covenant, the Old Testament is foundational. Same God, a loving father towards his children. Same God. Now there are many uh, aids available to read the scriptures. There's a wonderful book by Gordon Fee who's one of the great Protestant Bible scholars of this age called How to Read the Bible Book by Book. You can get it from Kurong. It's a wonderful book. Give you about six pages on each book of the Bible. Give you a historic background, main point, and things to look out for. And I think it's probably worthwhile to have a look at those things before you start off reading, especially some of the more difficult. 
Leviticus, etc., which you could probably afford to skip over quite a bit of, the ritual laws, etc. But there are such gems, particularly in the prophets, the prophets and the Psalms, and the history books as well, the Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, our foundation with Leviticus being a little, a little more legalistic. But there you are, I've given you the answer, but will you take it up? And the point about it is this, don't worry about failure. There's no failures. Just be faithful. Hold on. Don't give in. When the voices of temptation come to you and say, you might as well stop because you know you missed it yesterday, you'll miss it again tomorrow, so why bother doing this? That's not the point. Who would stop taking your medicine? You might forget one day, something might take you somewhere else, but you'll run back to that medicine because you know you need it. What you need to do is become aware of your need for God's law. If you want to live well in the world, follow the commandment of God. If you want to survive as a Christian in a hostile age, meditate on his law. It is the key of life. Glory be to God forever. Amen. Are there any discussion points you'd like to raise? or? Sorry? I'm sorry, I can't hear. Yes, yes. Um, distraction sometimes, if that's what it is. It can be distraction. It can also be a false, uh, a false expectation. If receiving the Spirit from reading the Bible is something you think you'll feel, well, you're on the wrong path already. The spiritual life does not give warm, fuzzy feelings. If times of blessing come, thank God and keep going. Don't concentrate. The pilgrim people of God are on a journey. They don't stop anywhere, no matter how good the oasis might be, to rest and relaxing. You just keep going. There'll be plenty of time for that in glory. But here on this earth, we have to travel. The image of the, image of the people of God is like a travelling... Uh, caravan we're moving from place to place you know it says in the in the beautiful liturgy it says it uses the old english word we are only sojourners here we only we're only traveling through this world we're heading towards jordan we're heading towards the promised land so to receive the spirit and life the words of jesus which are spirit and life means to faithfully read it every day and as i said to you it will form your character but you've just got to keep doing it. You might not notice how it does, but you've got to keep doing it. And you can't tell me that it doesn't make a change because moments of inspiration come when you start to read and say, yes, I understand what he's saying. That's who I am. That's where I'm at. Now I understand. It's a clear way. Is, is that helpful? Well, the Holy Spirit, I mean, it depends on whether you want to, what you expect the Holy Spirit is. The Holy Spirit of God is the presence of God in your heart. So that every act of goodness, every kind thought, every act of gentleness, mercy, love, forgiveness, patience, kindness, right? Every one of those things is the presence of the Holy Spirit in you. It's not some sort of religious thing tacked onto you. It's life itself, right? It's life itself. Now, we seem to think because the church is, um, uh, it's, it seems so alien to the normal normal life it's like we sort of have this 
unexpected uh, idea that somehow or other there's life and there's spiritual life. Well, there's no such thing. There's just life. Hey, there's just life. Hey, 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 Arabic. Hey, there's life. That's all there is, life. Now, Jesus didn't live a religious life. He lived life. He lived life. And that means living life well. It means being in connection with how God, because as the psalmist tells you and as the Torah tells you, the law of Moses tells you, the words of God are life themselves. Choose life, God says to the Israelites, as they're about to go into the land and possess it. Choose life, because if you follow these commandments, if you follow these commandments, um, you will have a blessed life on this earth. You will have trouble, yes, of course, but you will have a blessed life. You won't kill each other. You won't commit adultery. You won't steal. You'll honour your parents. You'll remember the Sabbath day. You won't put false gods. You won't lie. All those things. If you follow that way of life, your life is blessed. You won't get any better reward than that, this side of eternity. So the blessing of God's Holy Spirit on us is not like the heretics say that God will fall on us and will fall on the ground, put our hands up in the air and all of that. It's not that at all. It's living life authentically. That's the blessing of God's presence in us. You know when you meet somebody, particularly you might have met a particularly holy monk, usually among the monks you find them, and among the nuns too if you know them, those who've really given their life for Christ, and there's a quality, almost an aura of simplicity around them, a beauty and a love that really... Uh, is something you want because they're living human life at its deepest form. Okay? That's what we're heading towards that. Now, we don't all have to be monks or nuns, thank God. You know, I'm quite happy being a married priest. But um, I can't stress to you enough that the law of God is... Well, it says, I quoted the other night in the Bible study, Psalm 19, the law of the Lord is perfect, the instruction of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. More to be desired of the instructions of the Lord than gold, yes, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey in the honeycomb. Psalm 19. Beautiful. Sweet. You know, how, how important is it to say, to say every day, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. There's not a thousand gods in heaven, there's one. And he is our Father. And you should love the Lord with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. What else have I got to love him with? Nothing. That's everything I give it to him. And you all of a sudden are liberated. You don't have to run your own life because you belong to him. And when you belong to God, that means his word will direct your steps in the way which you should go. It doesn't promise it'll be easy, but it does come. It does come. Any other questions? Father. Yes. Yes. 
Let's start the first one, which is about the feelings. Just finding a Bible verse. Okay. Feelings. Can anyone please point me to any verse or promise in the scripture that says, you shall feel good when you pray? Certainly not the sort of thing St Paul would say. He's too grumpy. He's too busy doing it. You know what I mean? Does Jesus say that? No. If we look at the, at the deepest prayer of Jesus, if we look at the deepest prayer of Jesus, which was prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, he sweat blood. Do you expect any less? Prayer is warfare to the last breath, according to our Coptic fathers. Prayer is warfare to the last breath. What's it war against? War against the devil? Yes. War against the thoughts of the mind? War against the ego, the self? And it's also war with God as we allow him to take control of our lives. It's like old Jacob wrestling with the Lord by the river Jabbok. You know that strange, strange encounter where he encounters the angel of the Lord and they wrestle all night and then God gets him. There is no promise, command or expectation in scripture. You shall feel happy. You know, I'll tell you, here's a confession. Some Sunday mornings, I'll go along to the church and I'll think, oh, here we go again. This is just normal broken humanity, okay? Here we go again. I'll start the incense up, I'll start the morning prayer. I think, oh boy, I said, Lord, honestly, at least you could turn up one morning and show your face to me. And then you're going to start this dancing around the altar with all this incense. And where are you? And of course, what always comes to me Spoken not through my ear, but you know that inner feeling you know. Something speaking to you and the Lord says, just keep doing what you're doing. Without fail. Whenever I ask of God proof, whenever I ask of God to fulfil an expectation, that's what comes to me. Just keep doing what you're doing. Now, if Jesus uh, was going to live his life in expectation of feeling good, well, he was in for a very sad shock, wasn't he? Because it never happened. There were moments when it says Jesus filled with joy. You know, there were moments when he leapt for joy and praised God that he revealed the wonders of the kingdom to such as little children. Remember, there's a part in Matthew that says that, but that's about it. He spent a lot of the time telling people off, telling the apostles how dumb they were, rebuking St Mary and his family. You know, on one occasion, um, there's, there's other times where he is exasperated by the lack of understanding of the people of the message he's come to bring them. So we have to remember God through obedience. It says in Deuteronomy, Remember when you enter into the land that I will give you, be careful not to forget the Lord who brought you up out of the land of Egypt, out of the place of slavery. Fear the Lord your God and worship him. Do not follow other gods, gods of the peoples around you. Now that really means a lot to us today, I think, because there's a lot of other gods out there, aren't there? I mean, we're in the middle of a city which is full of them. There's the gods of clubbing. There's the gods of consumerism on every shelf of every shop. 
There's the gods of drugs and alcohol and all the rest. I'm not going to name them all. You know as well as I do what they are. So when that's, when that's all around us, we need to remember this Lord our God who brought us up out of slavery because I'll tell you to serve other gods is slavery but the service of Christ is perfect freedom. So that's the experience thing. The experience. What was the second one? Run, run it past me again. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, the church is here to provide spiritual goodies for the consumers. There's a lot of that around. And that's why a lot of these super churches seem to, to flourish while we limp along. You know, they have, you know, sort of rock and roll music and lights and dancing and all that stuff, but they have a very quick turnover in membership because people realise it's not all really like that. That's all the big feelings, but the big feelings don't last. That's why it's so important when you come to the church, you don't come to the church, you are the church. The church is not the building, not the temple. What is this building without the people in it? I'll tell you, it's an empty four walls. You know that? What's the word church for in Ecclesia? It means the assembly of the Lord. When you gather together, you make church. You are the church. And the bishops given for thinking so the size of that chair but the bishops and the priests are here to serve not to lord here to serve and to show you how to serve by their example that's what it's about that's really what it's about so the spiritual life is about you taking on i mean jesus gave us the holy spirit when he returned to the father he wouldn't leave us orphans right and the Holy Spirit will call to my mind and hearts all the things that Jesus said and did, and he will lead us into all truth. It's not about the, about the Spirit being sent simply to lead the church into all truth doctrinally. And that's what it's talked about constantly, you know, the development of the doctrine and all that. Ah, that's true to a point. Leading you into all truth is convicting your heart to give yourself more and more to Jesus Christ, who is truth. Because he's the Spirit of Jesus, sent from the Father, proceeding from the Father, put into our hearts so that we become like Jesus in the world. Okay? And to have the spirit of Jesus means to be constantly giving our life to God every day. And when I talked about the law of God being foundational and important and needed to be meditated upon every day, I want to read you the full, the full verse from Deuteronomy about the ancient Shema Israel, the hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. I'll read it to you all of it. It's so beautiful. And these days, uh, the Jews still practice this to these days as the men put on those phylacteries. But it's beautiful to read. Listen, Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. These words that I give you today are to be in your heart. Repeat them to your children. Talk about them when you sit in your home and when you walk along the road, when you lay down and when you get up. Bind them as a sign on your hand and let them be a symbol on your forehead. Write them on the doorposts of your house and on your city gates. Now that's a whole culture of belief, isn't it? And that's what we need to do. We mark our houses with the cross, which we should, which is a sign of God's law and his love for us. But it should be, it should be on us every day. 
It should be the food of our spiritual life is the instruction that God gives to us. So that when we come to the church, you know, you don't come to the church expecting to get something. You go to the church to make church with others in order to give something to God and to each other. When you come before the Lord at the altar, you come and offer him your heart. And you offer yourselves to your brethren as they need you so that you can learn to live a godly, peaceful life. That's what church is all about. We've got a top-heavy kind of inheritance. We've got a you know 2,000-year tradition, which is wonderful, but can also be a, a very heavy dead weight and can also lead people to think that that's what it's all about, is all the colour and the power and all this business. You know, big, great big doors and ostriches and all that, these massive pillars. It's not about that at all. It's not about that at all. It's about the oneness of the heart with God in Christ Jesus. And you carry your church with you wherever you go, every day. It's the church here. The first church is the church of the heart. The second church is the assembly of your family. And the third one is the assembly of all the people. Remember when you die, when you breathe your final breath, you go to God alone and you answer for how you've lived. If the church will intercede and pray for you, but it's between you and your maker.